Justin and I have been in, in um, various forms of ministry for most of our adult life. Um, so doing stuff like this isn't new, but sometimes it feels new. So, um, yeah, my, my goal this morning, my hope, my desire this morning is to um, sort of be used to inspire at least one person in the same way that I was inspired when I was 19 uh, to become a student of the Bible. And that phrase might ring a number of different bells in your head for you. Maybe it's scary. Maybe it's like, I already am a Bible student. I read the Bible every day. I don't know. Ooh, well, this is, is this is that mic? No, it's not. This is just God's power speaking through the static of the, uh, <laughs> the, the microphone. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> the sound guy's looking like, I don't know what to do. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to keep vamping, so to speak. Um, yeah, to inspire you to be a student of the Bible. And not for the sake of just adding more knowledge to your head. Not for the sake of having more information in your brain to know. Um, because really, when you study God's Word, you're studying His heart and His mind. And the whole reason to do that is to then live it out. When they studied the Bible in Jesus' time, it wasn't just to know it, it was their, their way of life. It determined everything about how they lived, how they thought, what they felt, how to interact with people. That's what I'm hoping to inspire with you guys. Do it. If you were to give that and a box of crayons to a four-year-old, you'd have some pretty interesting pictures, wouldn't you? Like, the guy on the right might be all purple or all kinds of colors, and the little dude on the left might be, who knows what he would be, but they, they, would, just, they would just have fun doing it, but there's no skill, there's no maturity to it, there's no, no, uh, what, no representation of what it's supposed to be. You give that to a 14-year-old who has hopefully seen Star Wars, and good parenting means you let your kids watch Star Wars at some point. I'm not going to say when, that's up to you but that's how that works. It might look a little better. The guy on the right would be yellow or gold, because that's the color he is in the movie. Little dude on the left um, would be all like white and blue and silver in, in all the right places, maybe a little red sprinkled in here and there. If you were to give this to a student of animation, somebody in college, somebody who knows what they're doing, you might get, you should get the proper colors, the proper life, the proper shading. It would look pretty good because they know what they're doing, because they've been at it for a while, because they've studied how to make things look the way they, they should look. When you think about it, the way you color a picture reveals your understanding of what the lines depict. It reveals uh, you would know the color and the life involved and where the shading and depth are. If you've never seen Star Wars, and as a mature grown-up who knows how to color, you would do your best, I would hope, but you might not get it exactly right. But it shows what you know. These things come with practice, they come with maturity, which affects your experience with it. Like, I'm not very good at coloring because I don't really enjoy doing it. I look like the four-year-old. That's the outcome that I produce when I color. So it affects your experience with it, which then ref, uh, res, the results represent to others your ability to color. 
Like, I would be like, look at my pretty picture. How old are you? 45. Oh, not so great. These same concepts can be applied to our understanding of the Bible, to our relationship with God, and how we live that out. The way we color in the lines of the Bible reveals our understanding of the text. The color and the life we see in the text come from the Holy Spirit. He's the one who shows us the color. He's the one who shows us the life. The shading and the depth come from studying things around the text, things like uh, the language, the history, the culture, sort of provides all that extra dimension to it. All of these things impact our relationship with God and how we represent Him to others. Just like coloring, with practice and maturity comes right relationship with God and rightly representing Him to others. So what does it mean to color the Bible? Well, the Bible gives us the black and white outlines. It gives us the black outlines on white pages, but rarely does it give us the color and the shading. The Bible doesn't really give us the why behind what's happening in the text. We read historical, historical accounts. We read what people, what people say. We read about where places are. But like any conversation, if you're just reading it, if you're not seeing it, if you're not hearing it, you could color it a number of different ways. But at the very least, the Bible gives us the black and the white. Doesn't change, never changes, but it's not on its own as rich as it could be. Um, where do the colors and shading usually come from? Well, if, if you're around church for a while, uh, you maybe have particular Bible teachers maybe you like to listen to on the radio or now you can listen to them online. And the more you listen to a particular Bible teacher, the more you tend to color the Bible the way that the teacher colors the Bible doesn't necessarily come from the Holy Spirit, and what you're getting is their sort of inspiration. You're getting the way that they have learned how to color and shade and, and put in the depth and the texture of the Scripture, but might not be the whole picture. And when you just take it as the whole picture, you don't really get the whole picture. Um, so Bible teachers we've heard in the past impact our understanding of the text. Um, culture, art, and movies, and books, most of our understanding as modern Americans of what angels are and look like comes from art. So they're fat little babies with wings and diapers. They're very sad-looking women with long robes and big wings, and it's it's that's where this stuff comes from, and movies and, and other places that just sort of try to fill in these gaps doesn't work. That's not necessarily the reality of what they are. Um, our color and shading also comes from reading and studying in isolation. Like if you spend your time reading the Bible just by yourself, only ever by yourself, if you spend your time only ever studying the Bible just by yourself, you're missing out. Because the way that God has designed the Bible to be studied, the way that he has designed us to be the body, is to do it together. Now, we should do it on our own, but we should, all, we should never do it just on our own. So when you read phrases like when Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in, uh, 
gather together, there I am in their midst, that's got nothing to do with really being the church together. Because in context, when you look at the context, when you read around it, when you study the history, and you do this work that I'm about to talk to you about, you realize that it's about how when people are in the Word together, when they're in Torah, in the law, when they're in God's Word together, because He is the Word, because He's in the Word, that's how He is in their midst. That's really the, the bigger picture of what's going on. So we are going to look at two examples of what I think are miscolored Bible passages, followed by what I think we need to do to properly color, to properly understand um, God's Word so that we can properly relate to God and represent him to others. Okay? So today it's like, this isn't very sermony or preachy. I know. It's a little bit of workshop, but it's a little bit of preach. So here comes the preach part, if that's what you like. Um, turn to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is the first book of the Bible. Should be pretty easy to find. Chapter 3 comes after chapter 2 before chapter 4. God gave us numbers, that's cool. So this is one of those passages that is typically taught in the same style. Uh, I call it the blame game. Because typically what happens, uh, and I've taught it this way and I've heard other great Bible teachers teach it this way, but what I want to do is to try to strip away some of the color that we've been, has been put over us, look at the black and white, and see if there's another way to color this passage. doesn't change the outcome. doesn't change the theology. It just changes the color and how we see it. The blame game goes like this. God tells Adam and Eve, don't eat from this tree. Snake, serpent comes in. Satan comes in, tricks them, and then... God comes back up and says, uh, uh, Adam, what have you done? And Adam points his finger at Eve, blames. I just, she gave, the woman you gave me, it's her, it's, it's her fault. She did it. And then he goes to the woman, well, why did you do this? Well, the serpent came and he tricked me. So, he's, so she's blaming the serpent. And the serpent doesn't have any arms to point fingers to. So he's like, I, I don't know, I don't know. It's, it's all blame. And then God's mad. So he punishes them by kicking them out of the garden. Is that generally how you've heard this passage taught? Okay. That might be right. I don't know. I wasn't there. I'm not that old. But let's look at it another way. Let's, we're going to kind of skim through parts to hit some of the highlights and hit the important, the important parts. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. I'm reading from the New King James, so if that freaks you out, or you're reading something else, you can just listen, that's fine. It says, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the tr fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be like God. Your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now hit pause. Satan tells the woman three things. 
Only one of them is a lie. The lie is you shall not surely die. The other two things, absolutely true. You, in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. That happens later in the text. It flat out says that. You shall be like God, knowing good and evil. God himself says at the end, they've become like us, knowing good and evil. So you have to stop and ask the question, well, what does it mean to know good and evil? If God knows good and evil, what does that mean? So some of this is my own experience. Maybe this is me talking. You're like, you idiot. <laughs> you don't understand this works? I apologize. To know good and evil, like, it's not doing something evil because God's never done anything evil, right? So it can't be doing something good and evil. Uh, knowing good and evil can't be um, having an evil thought because God's never had an evil thought. So what does it mean for Adam and Eve to know good and evil in the same way that God knows good and evil? It's not by experience. It's something else. So when you do a little digging, this is one of the study habits we'll talk about later, into that word for knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what you discover is that it means to decide, or one of the ways it can be used is to decide. So if I use the phrase, uh, I know what's best for my family. Am I saying I have head knowledge as to what's best for my family? A little bit. What I'm saying is I decide what is best for my family. You don't get to decide. I get to decide. Does that make sense? This, this means yes. Okay. So this knowledge of good and evil is not just head knowledge. It's not just experiential knowledge. It's decision knowledge. So who is the one in all creation who decides good and evil? You can say it out loud. It's okay. But God does. That's right. So when Adam and Eve eat the fruit, now they're deciding what is good and evil. This has been happening since then. This is the key struggle between mankind and God is who decides good and evil. That's what this is. So when, he, when she is tempted with this, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's what it is. I decide what's best for me. Well, you can think that for now, but ultimately not so much. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the, tr and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Pretty simple. Not much deduction to happen there. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. So there's one of the things Satan said. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Now here's where some coloring comes in. If you have a pre-colored version of this text, you might hear something like, where are you? If God's mad, if he's irked, if he's vexed. He's going to say this a little angry. If God has a relationship, a loving, caring relationship with his creation, the crown of his creation, Adam and Eve, 
It might be more like, hey, where are you? No, wait, why is God asking him where they are? Doesn't he, isn't he God? Doesn't he know everything? Well, being a loving father, if you've ever had kids and your kids are hiding from you, you probably know exactly where they are because you hear sounds of where they are. And you're like, where are you? <laughs> They're giggling, right? So I'm pretty sure God knows where they are. He just wants them to step up. He wants them to step out because he knows he's God. He knows what's happening. He knows what's going on. He's like, okay, let's, let's address this. Verse 9 again, then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, God, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? So the man said, the woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Now, if we're looking in the, this in the context of relationship, I don't see blame. I don't see the woman you gave me, so it's kind of your fault, God. You gave me this woman, and she gave me this, so I ate. I see confession. I see Adam owning up to what just happened. He's, he's honestly just describing the sequence of events. The woman you gave me, you know, in case you forgot her, you know her. She, cause like there's nobody else around, right? She gave me, not the giraffe, not the monkey, woman. She gave me the tree, the fruits of the tree, and I ate it. That's what happened. Confession. That's what I think we're seeing here. Uh, skim, skim, skim. Verse 13, and the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Again, just asking, what is, what is, what is this you have done? Then the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Again, not blaming, not, I'm sorry, it's his fault. You know what happened? The serpent gave it to me. He deceived me. That's on me. I was deceived, and I ate it. Just that. And then God goes on to pronounce the consequences for their disobedience. And really, their disobedience boils down to them deciding what is good and evil. Not just the action. It's taking on the responsibility it's taking on, I'm going to decide. I now have the knowledge of good and evil. I know what's up. I'm going to decide for myself. And so he pronounces what are called the curses on uh, the serpent, on Adam, and on Eve. We're not going to go through those. We're going to go down to verse 22. Then the Lord God said... Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. There it is. That's simple. They're like us, knowing good and evil. Not just head knowledge, not experiential knowledge, because that's God doesn't has never experienced doing something evil, but to decide good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... 
And that's where mine has like an end quote and a little line, like it just trails off, like, what's the rest of that sentence? What has just happened here? But God's saying, let's, something's got to happen, because if Adam and Eve reach out and now eat from the tree of life and live forever, why is that a problem? Because now they are in a state where they are separated from him. And if they now eat from this tree of life and live forever, they will live forever in a state separate from him. So what God's about to do is not a punishment for eating the fruit. It's protection. God is stepping up to protect them. Verse 23, therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Very different account, isn't it? When you take away an angry God, when you take away the blame game and simply look at it in the context of relationship, which is what's happening, whole different color scheme, whole different shading, whole different texture. Like, this isn't a scary story anymore to me. This isn't like a, oh, don't make God mad because he's going to kick you out. It's like, man, God cares about me. And he's going to do what it takes to take care of me even when I'm the one who messed myself up. That's like a gospel story, isn't it? God protecting me from myself. Who else needs protection from themselves? God, I know what's best for me. You don't have to. Like God's like, you're so cute. You don't even know. But unless you get my help, trouble's coming. Bad stuff will happen, not because of me, but because of the choices you make. I want to help you. To me, that's the way that this is sort of, this is recolored. So when you read it, just the text with no filters, when you pray about it, what is God's heart? What does his spirit want to say to me? And when you study it and you look up some word stuff, you get a very different picture. Doesn't change the theology, doesn't change the outcome, but it changes the way, and I think it corrects the way God wants to present himself to us, the way we can experience God. So to me, this is one of uh, a number of passages that I've, I've chosen to that um, is miscolored, and I think when we learn how to color it correctly, draws us closer to God. The other one is at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. So go ahead and flip back to Revelation chapter 3. No, concordance is not the last book of the Bible. Oh, come on. Harmony of the Gospels? Nope, not the last book of the Bible either. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 is a series of seven letters from Jesus himself to seven churches that existed uh, in the area we call Turkey today, Asia Minor. Um, they're they're kind of like report cards. Is one way to look at them. There's a series of good things, a series of bad things, a series of things that need work, and here's how to improve. They're kind of like report cards. And one church in particular, I think we miscolor, we mischaracterized 
mostly because of our own culture. We overlay some of our own cultural uh, phrases or concepts or illustrations, and it really messes up. It actually kind of breaks theologically who God is and how he thinks about people. Um, so let's go through starting in verse 14. Revelation 3, and to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, when you go back and read chapter 1, you'll see that these titles all come from chapter 1. They all refer back to God or refer to Jesus. Uh, 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were hot or wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Ooh, Jesus vomits. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and, re and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and, he, and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And I will also, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Heck of a report card. God's like, I'm going to spit you out. Why? Okay, here's the, to me, the miscolored version of this. In our culture, in our society, even in, especially in, in church terms, we think of hot. I'm referring specifically to those verses. Um, I know your works that you were neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. But because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. We think of hot as being like hot's good, right? Man, he's hot. Like some sports player is like he's, he's making three-point. He's hot. He's on fire tonight, right? Don't check the Seahawks score right now. I see what's going on. I see phones coming on. I know what's up. Okay, good. I saw the score. I know he's winning. Sorry. Um, he's, that person is, is in, in church, man, the, the, the spirit really has them on fire. They're, they're alive. There's, heat is good, right? Well, then, as we culturally think that way and as we apply it to the, the text, we tend to think cold is bad. Cold's, cold is, oh, man, they're cold. That, what that person said now, that was cold. That was mean. That was not good. Um, in church, we talk about the frozen chosen, right? It's, it's, that, church, that church is cold. That church is dead. Dead things are cold, typically, right? So hot is good. Cold is bad. That's generally what we overlay on this text. Well, when you look at the three options, hot, cold, or lukewarm, which one is actually the bad one? Lukewarm is, right? So where does, where does this come from? Why do we overlay this? Why, 
why is Jesus is actually saying hot is good, so is cold. Cold is great. Hot, cold. I wish you were hot or cold. Because if we take the cold to mean hot is on good, they're on fire, they're saved, and cold is they're dead, does Jesus ever wish that somebody was dead? This means yes, and this means no. Does Jesus ever wish that on anybody? No, no, no. In fact, another place in Scripture, it says that his, his, he wishes that everybody would come to repentance and be saved, but he knows that everybody is, but that's his heart. So hot is good. Cold is also good. What's not good is lukewarm. Now, what we are missing today as modern 21st century Christians is the cultural historical context of Laodicea. Laodicea was in a, in a river valley, very close to another church you may have heard of called Colossae, the, the epistle to the Colossians, and a place you've probably never heard of called Hierapolis. Um, Laodicea, or not, yeah, had a bad water supply problem. Now, they were in a river valley, but it's really more like Salmon Creek. Really not enough to supply a city. So what the Romans did, the amazing engineers that they are, is they built two aqueducts, one from Colossae and one from Hierapolis. Now, the one in Hierapolis, that city was fed, it's still there, uh, by a hot spring. They still have a mineral hot spring like hotel. You can go and soak in the hot springs and do all that. Well, they had an aqueduct and a pipe that fed water from there down to Laodicea. Colossae got a lot of its water from snowmelt, so it's very cold, right? And they piped their water in to Laodicea, but by the time the cold water got to the town or the hot water got to the town, what was wrong? It was lukewarm. The water they got from a hot source or from a cold source was minerally lukewarm blah. Who wants to drink that, right? Not me. That picture would have been very clear in their head. I wish you were hot. I wish you were cold. But because you're lukewarm, bleh. Vomit, rainbow yawn, puke, whatever you want to call it. I spit you out of my mouth. Therapeutically, medically, hot is very good on some injuries. So is cold. Do you see? I might hope I'm like overselling this point because I don't, that's, it's kind of a big deal. Hot is good. Cold is also good. Lukewarm is where the problem is. I want you to be, think of it this way. I wish you were extreme for me. But because you're not extreme for me, I don't really have a use for you. But he reminds them that you can become extreme again. You can become that. He says, later on, he says, to repent. Another little tidbit from the context, uh, later on at the end of verse 18, he says, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Laodicea also had a medical school where they produced, among other things, an eye salve. He's like, take your own medicine, you guys. You make this stuff. You know what it works. Clear up your eyes. Clear up your vision. Because when you get goop and pink eye and other gross things in your eye, you can't see very well. He's like, fix your vision, fix your eyes, fix your heart. So again, as we read it, 
we see the pictures and the patterns, and we look at the history and look at the culture. We pray about it. What is God's heart really? It's never for destruction. It's always for people's salvation or for relationship. And as we study the history, we get the color. We get the texture. We get the shading. And it's a much, to me, again, just like the Genesis passage, shows me God's heart. Shows me that he wants to draw me in. Shows me that he wants to work with me to fix sin, to fix problems, to eliminate obstacles, and walk with me, have right relationship with me. So what do we need to color the book properly? I see it as we need a balance of three things. You want to put the first slide up? We obviously need the Word. The Word provides the black and white lines of our coloring picture. The parts that never change, the parts that show us the essential of what the picture is. Uh, it's focus, it's the source, it's the foundation. Again, it's the unchangeable black and white framework. Absolutely need the word as part of the balance. The second thing we need is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks to us. The Holy Spirit brings color to the black and white. He brings vibrancy to the black and white. He illuminates. He lights it up. Uh, he provides inspiration. It's, it's like maybe you've had this happen where you read a particular Bible passage once, and maybe you just, oh, okay, I'm reading it and skip this. And a year later, 10 years later, you reread that same passage, and that one verse, that one phrase suddenly is like it's lit up by a Holy Spirit spotlight. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. It was there the whole time. But what God did is as you grow and you change, because God's word is living and active and the Holy Spirit's involved, he illuminates. He highlights these things that you were there, but you weren't ready for it. Now you are. It's very, very cool when that happens. And that's what I'm, again, hoping to inspire in all of us. The third thing we need, we need some knowledge. That's where the shading, that's where the depth comes from. That's where you have to get a little academic, a little bit. You have to learn some history. You have to learn some culture. So I think we need a balance of these three things to be solid Bible students that, again, are not just head knowledge, people who are walking with God, people who are living out the things that we study and that we learn. Uh, Something I've, I've said over the years is that we need to be a 21st century Christian is to be a student of ancient history. It really is. If this is your book, if this is God's message to you, you need to know it. And it's rooted in ancient history. It's rooted in ancient culture, but I hate history, and I hate studying. So did I. Man, I, school was not my friend. It wasn't until years later that, oh, I wish they paid attention. Like, even in math class, not too long ago, I'm like, I need to figure this out. Oh, I remember they talked about that in Mr. Rob's eighth grade math class. So I had to ask the math teacher at the school I work, how do I do this? And they're like, seriously? Yeah. It comes around. Trust me. 
But to be a 21st century Christian is to be a student of ancient history. If any one of these three things, uh, just the word, just the spirit, just the knowledge, is isolated and excluded from the rest, that's when we get into trouble. That's when churches or individuals or movements or denominations, that's when things get weird. Um, if you come from a Bible-dominant culture, then that really is what leads to legalism. When it's just Bible text only, it becomes rules, no life. Um, you must be right at all costs. In fact, that's largely where Phariseeism came from. They, want, they had the right heart. They wanted to live out God's word, but there was no life in it. There was no spirit to it. There was no heart connection with God. It was like, what does the word say? What did the traditions on top of the word say? Let's live those things out to the T. That's why Jesus is like, man, you guys tithe of mint and all your little herb garden, but you miss the point. Like, what's the point of tithing mint? I love mint. But what's the point of tithing from your herb garden if you're not actually giving your heart to God? Um, but the Bible itself says that it's all we need. Yes, that's true. But it also says to study it. It also says that the Spirit will teach us. So Bible-dominant only, not great. Spirit-dominant is also a bad thing. When it's Holy Spirit-focused primarily, almost to the point of only, that's when you have a feelings-driven faith. How does it make me feel? Does it make me feel happy? Does it make me feel powerful, like I'm a spiritual Holy Spirit person? Does it make me feel more spiritual? Does it give me the freedom that I want? That tends to be the focus, historically, of church movements and denominations that are focused almost only on the Holy Spirit. It's about me. It's about how I feel. It's about my experience. Um, Lots of justifying of sin happens. Also happens in the Bible dominant, but it's sadly a lot more public in the spirit-driven stuff. But the Bible says that the spirit will bring out to remembrance what Jesus has said. Yes, it does. But it also has to go in there in the first place to be remembered, right? Can't remember it if you never learned it. I learned that math problem, but I totally forgot it. Same is true with the Bible. The Spirit gives us the words to speak. That's what it says. Yeah, when you're on trial for your lives and for your faith, that's the context of that phrase. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. When you're going to die in front of a, the enemy, kind of how that works. Again, missing the Bible context and twisting the Scripture for your own purpose. Well, a knowledge-dominant environment leads to filtering the Bible and the Spirit through human experience and understanding. It reduces the Bible to a collection of stories. What happens when you have a knowledge-dominated environment is we decide who and what Jesus is. That's even saying that's kind of scary. We decide, we deem whether miracles and the resurrection is even possible. It's like, well, it's a good story, it's a good illustration, but it didn't really happen. Whoa. But that stuff is important. 
learning the history, learning the culture, learning the environment, all those, learning the language, those are all important. Um, the Bible is no longer the authority, but people and opinion and culture are the authority. So how do we encourage balance? Finally get to some practical stuff. We need the word. I know I kind of already said that, but it almost can't be said enough. We need to read it, all of it, all 66 books, Old Testament, New Testament, need to read the whole thing. Um, it is really one book. I think, the, I think there's a page in the Bible that needs to be torn out. It's the page that says New Testament. It's like Malachi, Matthew, one book. One contiguous thing. It's, even though it's 66 books by over 40 different people written in three different languages on three different continents over thousands of years, one book, one author, one theme. And when you get into doing this, you see it and it's awesome. And God shows you his power to make these connections and to do these things and makes you want to get into it more. At least that's what it does with me. It's God's heart, it's God's mind. Without the black and white lines of the Bible, you are left with what is like a, anybody know who Jackson Pollock is? This, it's like a paint factory exploded on a canvas. It's just color and blotches. Like, what even is that? I'd rather color R2-D2, but that's me. You need the whole picture to understand how it works. You need the Spirit. You need Him to test you, and you also to test him. It tells us to test those things. Um, you need to understand that the Holy Spirit still speaks. And I realize that for some people, for some denominations or backgrounds, that's a problem. Um, and not to sound snarky, but it's not a problem for me. It's not a problem for the Bible. Um, he talks to us. He guides us. That Jesus said that I'm going away, but I'm sending you the Holy Spirit to do these things. Um, what he says will always line up, for, line up with Scripture. It will never contradict it. If you hear someone or something say that they are representing the Holy Spirit and it contradicts Scripture, not the Holy Spirit. Say, thank you for your input and move along. You, just, you don't have to listen to that. Um, realize that he will speak to you as you ask him to. Like whenever you get into the word, think of the Holy Spirit as your personal tutor. The one who, as you were reading it, as you were listening to a pastor or a teacher teach it, um, as they are sharing with you what hopefully the Holy Spirit has inspired in them, he will also show you things. Like, no offense to any other Bible teacher I've heard or David, but sometimes I'll be reading along and suddenly there's another voice showing me something and it's not David's. As great as David is. <laughs> or, uh, or, you know, that's, that's what happens. And that's, knowing David, that's what he would want. Knowing any good pastor, that's what they would want is, listen to the Holy Spirit first and me second. Holy Spirit still speaks. That's kind of my point. Um, and again, Knowledge. Become a student. To be a Christian is to be a student of ancient history. Learn the history and the culture of what you were reading and studying. 
you can have, like, it used to be that you, you had to go buy a ton of books. Just ask Rob about books, right? <laughs> He's got tons and tons of books. You can have pretty much all, a whole Bible library on your phone. It all fits, and it's all searchable, and you can make notes, and you can make highlights. It's so easy to get to this stuff now without having to have boxes and shelves of books that you're like, I don't even know what I have anymore. It's, it's all, it's, it's so easy to, easy to get to now. And you're like, okay, well, what do I study? Well, pray about it. Pick a person. Pick your favorite character in the Bible and make a study of their life when they lived, where they lived, what was the time like, what was the food like, what was life like. Learn all that. Pick a place. I don't know. Pick a book of the Bible and become an expert in it. Start somewhere. So as you look at your own knowledge and understanding of the Bible, as you look at your relationship with God, as you look at how you represent him to other people, what is missing from this picture in your own life? Is it the black and white, absolute lines of the Bible? Is it the color and the life of the Holy Spirit? Is it the shading and the depth of knowledge and the history and the culture, people, places, and times of the Bible? Which, by the way, these three things, this is why we need to do it together. Because sometimes one person's really good at listening to Holy Spirit, sometimes another person's really good at knowing where things are in the Bible, and another person's really good at knowing the history stuff. And when you do it together, it's like when a really good band plays together. It's like, yeah, this is cool. This is good. People can feed off of one another, and it's a great, great thing. But we need those three things. So the next step for you and for me in having a colorful, vibrant, deep, and eye-popping understanding of God's Word of having relationship with him and the ability to represent him to others. Well, what is that for you? It's not one thing for all of us. It's what is that for you? What do you need to do next? On Workplace, I'm going to post a PDF later today with some suggested Bible study resources, some different apps, the pros and cons of the different apps. Uh, some pretty good, but maybe entry-level things like atlases and, and commentaries or dictionaries um, that maybe you want to look at, and maybe you want to start building your little library. Let me let me put it to you this way. Um, I don't know how long I'm going, but I'm going to end with this. Oh, there's the score again. Sorry. Um, this is what was put to me: make the Bible your hobby, like. If you have a hobby, whether it's a sport or photography or whatever, you invest time and you invest money in participating in that hobby, don't you? Make the Bible your hobby. Invest time. Invest some money. Invest, learn how to do these things, and your life will change. The more you get into God's Word, the more God's Word will get into you and the more you'll want to live it out. Now let me flip that over. A really good pastor friend of mine who's been pastoring for over 40 years said, and it sounds weird, but 
It's true. We don't need more Bible studies for people to go to. We need more people to obey the Bible they've already been given. You're welcome. But it's got to get in us. And Sunday church is great, but it's not enough. You need your own connection to God. You need a little group of people to get connected to God. All of these things work together so that we can be more connected to God and then live it out in our little world here of Hazeldale and Vancouver and Western Clark County. So that's my challenge to you. Make the Bible your hobby. If you want help, I'm putting stuff on Facebook or Facebook Workplace, which is Facebook. You can come ask me, ask David, and um, yeah, I think I'm done now. Why don't we pray? Don't clap, just buy me coffee. It's totally fine. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to share uh, with our church family um, something that I'm particularly passionate about. I hope, God, my prayer is that I did inspire, that you inspired through me at least one person to want to make the Bible their hobby. Um, I know that that's not the way necessarily that everybody connects to you, um, but some people do. I hope I'm not the only weird one, Lord. Um, that this would light a fire in somebody, that this would be the beginning of maybe a new ministry for somebody, that as they get into the Word, that they now understand what your calling is on their lives and that they will pursue that, and, and great things will happen in the kingdom of God. God, I, again, I, I pray that this massive information is uh, inspiring, that it breathes life into all of us to not just get it into our heads, but to get it into our hearts, and then to get it into our feet so it goes somewhere in our hands and it does something. Um, we're going to spend some more time worshiping you, that in itself is, a, is an offering, is a sacrifice. Um, even if we don't use our mouths, if it just comes from our hearts, we want to thank you for who you are. We want to thank you that you want to speak to us, and that you have given us this black and white text, that you want to light it up with your Holy Spirit, and you want us to dig into it uh, with our heads and our hearts. So thank you again, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.